This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss important health-related questions to provide you information you can trust, information you can trust that will be faithful to the dignity of the human person as understood by our Catholic Church. We have an exciting show planned today. Our main guest during the second and third quarter of the show will be Dr. Kathleen Birchelman. She's a pediatrician in St. Louis high-energy mother of six young children. We're going to discuss vaccinations. She especially wants to talk to us about the vaccines that are actually made from cells of aborted babies and also whether or not the HPV vaccine, that's human papillomavirus or wart vaccine, is something we should consider and you should consider giving your kids. But first, we're going to look at some recent medical news items that Chris has brought to us. Tom, today's news comes to us from a recent study that was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry and where the researchers discovered a, a very, some very disturbing trends, a nearly double risk of suicide attempts and a three times increased risk of successful suicide. Now, among- one would think, before you even tell us what it's related <laughs> to, it must have something to do with weapons and all the talk about Gun control, does it have something to do with that? Absolutely. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) But an equally important, uh, if not controversial topic. And that is to say these young women had a tremendous increase in risk of suicide from what you might say, taking hormonal contraceptives. What? Absolutely. The girls included in the study didn't have a history of suicide attempts or any other psychiatric diagnosis prior to starting the study uh, or to starting the hormonal contraceptives. So I assume this has been on network news. You know, it's funny. I must have missed it. I've been late at the office several days. Yeah. Can you imagine if we would tell you that taking Tylenol would uh, increase by threefold the risk of your child having a successful suicide? I don't think it would ever sell another bottle. Uh, You're right. Now, it's interesting. The study didn't differentiate sexually active versus non-sexually active young women, which is important because there's numerous other studies that have shown that just being sexually active among adolescents increases the risk of depression and suicide. One of those high-risk behaviors. Absolutely. So it could be very well that sexually active girls on hormonal contraception are at an even increased risk of suicide than just sexually active girls alone. More studies needed to really ferret out the details there. But this study has significant policy implications, if you think about it. So most of the health programs, particularly in public schools, are promoting pregnancy avoidance through contraception. Yes. And here we're seeing by not only, uh, and we should see, we should say in other studies, we see when we make hormonal contraceptive more available, young teens are more sexually active. Well, that's a shock. Yes. So the policy, absolutely. <laughs> so the policy that we're promoting and that's implemented in many of our schools, according to this study, is actually putting our kids at risk of suicide. That's devastating. And that's something that needs to be looked at from a broader policy perspective. Do you think anybody will do that? I don't know, but I have to say, uh, as I am like you, a father of daughters, and it would certainly appear to me that this is just one more piece of evidence that says the best policy to follow is one of sexual abstinence until marriage. I agree with you, and probably not even using contraceptives as medication for other conditions, but that'll be a topic for another day. I always find it interesting when someone does a study that proves to be true what we knew to be true already. (laughs) That sounds like a study I just read yesterday. Somebody actually took a look at whether women have colder hands than men or not, and in Utah they did this thermographic study that proved that women's hands on average are three degrees cooler than men's hands. But we knew it already, We already knew that. Yes. Okay. You have another topic for the news. Tom, there's another great piece of news out there in the, in the medical literature today, and it comes to us from a journal of the American Medical Association. We call that JAMA, those of us in the know, and it's from their October 2017 issue. And the article is titled, Association Between Biomarkers of Ovarian Reserve and Infertility Among Older Women of Reproductive Age. So just with the title, it should be intuitively obvious what it means. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sad to say that older in this study means 30. Wow. Now, I'm pretty sure I have blue jeans in my closet tonight <laughs> that are 30. But in this study, older meant age 30. 
Wow. 30 to 44 to be specific. The study was conducted by Dr. Ann Steiner and her colleagues at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. Now, this is a little bit of inside baseball, but for those people interested or struggling with fertility, they know about these two common tests. One is called FSH, or follicle-stimulating hormone, and the other one is called AMH, or anti-mullerian hormone. Now, it's very common for a fertility specialist to use these blood tests, typically on the third day of a woman's cycle, to give them some sense of their chance of becoming pregnant. It's often referred to as their ovarian reserve, or sometimes women will say, how do I know about the quality of my eggs, (laughs) which is just another way to ask the same question. And it's often thought that a a relatively elevated FSH and or a relatively low AMH are said to prove low reserve and therefore a low likelihood of becoming pregnant. And what's that based on? It's actually based on some misinformation. It's interesting, on the lab report for this AMH test, for example, there's an FDA statement that says this test has never been validated to predict pregnancy. It's only been validated to, to suggest which women will respond well to stimulation in in vitro fertilization cycles. Which is something we're not concerned about here anyway. Well, we're concerned, but it's something hopefully we're not doing, right? Right. As faithful Catholics. Now, the study looked at women aged 30 to 44 without a history of infertility and studied the likelihood that they would become pregnant within 12 months. And listen to this. The study found no correlation between so-called low ovarian reserve and the probability of pregnancy within 12 months. So these tests are just wasting blood and money. Well, they certainly are misleading a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of concerned women and their husbands. I see women every day that tell me I can't get pregnant without IVF because my AMH is low. And there's a lot behind that. Infertility practices that do in vitro fertilization are required to submit their data to the CDC to a public database. So if they do a stimulation cycle on a woman and the woman doesn't get pregnant, they have to report that as a failure, as a failed cycle. So they're very motivated to keep their failed cycle numbers low so they can say their success rates are high. Uh, So they'll turn away anyone that has a low AMH. But you don't turn them away. We don't turn them away. In fact, I'll tell you, I've delivered many, many babies from women who were told they couldn't achieve pregnancy because of their low AMH. And now we have a great study in a very prestigious and respected journal suggesting that is, in fact, the case. Oh, very good. So I think the take-home message for our listeners, those two lab results may be useful uh, as part of an overall assessment, but they certainly don't correlate with the possibility of becoming pregnant. Which is what your patients are after in the first place. Absolutely. Now, you know, is there an association between the age of a woman and the likelihood of her achieving pregnancy? Yes. As a woman ages, the probability of pregnancy naturally declines, and the probability of miscarriage or pregnancy loss naturally increases. But that's human biology. Yes. That's been with us since the beginning of time. It'll always be with us. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are discussing the day's news with my co-host, Dr. Chris Stroud. Chris is starting a new regular segment here, his Women's Health Tip of the Day. Chris, what do you want to tell women today? Today, we are going to talk about an important topic near and dear to my heart as an obstetrician gynecologist, and that is pap smears, something on which everyone is an expert not. Uh, There's a great deal of confusion about pap smears and the frequency with which a woman at at any given age should have a pap smear performed. So we're going to look today to the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, uh, a common source for us here on the show. Yes, it is. To look at the guidance. And it's very interesting. So uh, the guidance is this. Women aged 21 to 65 should have a pap smear every three years. From the age 30 to 65, if women want to increase that to every five years, they certainly can. And it's suggested that in addition to just the pap, they have a screening test for what's called human papillomavirus, something we're going to talk about with our guest later in the show. Most people are shocked to learn, though, from the age of 21, they only need a pap smear every three years. Why is that shocking? I think because it's been such a tradition in medicine to have a pap smear performed at the age typically of 18 or sexual activity, whichever was first. And the recommendation was actually changed several years ago. But as you and I know, in medicine, recommendations don't always lead to change in practice immediately. 
No, they don't. So what is it that led to the change? What studies, what did they learn? There was an understanding of the connection between human papillomavirus and pap smear abnormalities and age. That is, the younger a woman is, if she is exposed to human papillomavirus, she is much more likely to cure that problem herself and not need intervention. And the interventions that we did years and years ago for these early pap smear abnormalities were probably unnecessary. What do you mean that they would cure it themselves? Yeah, their immune system. It's really quite remarkable. Their immune system attacks the virus, attacks the damage, repairs the damage, and the vast majority of those women are going to go on to never have a moment's problem. But what that reminds me of is human papillomavirus. There are literally hundreds of them. Uh, also cause warts on the skin. And most warts will go away on their own. So it's the same thing. It's an internal wart in one sense. It's another example of how masterfully we're created. Yes, indeed. There's a few more points that our listeners would probably want to understand. There is no role for pap smears in women younger than the age of 21, even those women that are sexually active before 21. That's a really good point to know. Ah, and this is important. For the women over 65, there's really no recommendation for pap smears at all, unless they're in a subset of women that have had high-grade or serious pap smear problems earlier in life. Very good. And one final point. If you've had a hysterectomy and no longer have a cervix, you no longer need a pap smear. <laughs> it's physically impossible. So three takeaways for our audience to write this down. 21 to 30 years of age, a pap smear every three years, maybe every five years after the age of 31. There's more to you than your cervix, right? <laughs> a woman still needs an annual exam. She just doesn't need a pap smear as part of that annual exam. And thirdly, there's no pap before 21 or after 65 years of age. Thank you for those very practical tips I'm, our women listeners will certainly benefit from. And before we go to the break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day to see how much you know about that wonderful human body that God created. Today's question, the man who discovered the cause of Down syndrome has a cause for canonization, and he is responsible for a vitamin that all pregnant women should take. Who is this person, and what is the vitamin? In the last quarter of our show, we'll give you the answer, but now we're signing off until we come back with our guest, this is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud with Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we discuss health matters because people matter. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, aim to be trustworthy sources of medical information, especially for Catholics. Today, we're going to be talking about vaccines with Dr. Kathleen Birchelman. She's a pediatrician at Mercy Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, the mother of six young children, ages 1 to 13, and an active member of the Catholic Medical Association. And she wants to talk to us about many vaccine-related things, especially about vaccines that are actually made from cells of aborted babies, and about whether or not we should be giving our children the HPV vaccine or human papilloma virus vaccine for warts. Welcome, Kathleen. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you become interested in this topic, Kathleen? You know, I was so blessed for seven years to be a spokesperson from a major children's hospital, which was my former employer, and I was a blogger. And I did regular television, radio, and print interviews and articles. And this was probably the most common question I got from parents. Should I give my child the HPV vaccine? And I especially continue to get that question from the conservative community, the, the large family community, the Catholic community, because they want an opinion of someone that they can trust. Sure. And why do you think that is such a common question? Why is there reticence on the part of so many to give this vaccine? There are two main reasons why people hesitate to give the HPV vaccine to their child. The first is the misconception that you have to have sex to get HPV. And if they're teaching their child abstinence, then why do they need to take the risk of giving the vaccine? Because every vaccine has risk when really they are just hoping that they're teaching their child to practice abstinence, in which case there's, in their opinion, no risk. And the answer to that is simple. You can get HPV without having sex. 
And that message is, is not out there enough. The second reason that I hear a lot is that there's some kind of a financial incentive from the insurance companies to convince or brainwash doctors into giving people this vaccine. And really, it's all about the big pharmaceutical companies and they want to make the who want to make lots of money. And, you know, Tom and Chris, I'm not selling my soul that short. Um, (laughs) I've had that said to me in the office before. I've had patients say, aren't you getting some bonus for prescribing these vaccines? And I'm I'm thinking to myself, actually, I'm losing because of the time we've already spent talking about this. I'm certainly not getting a bonus. Well, Kathleen, you informed me of something I didn't realize before in an earlier conversation. When you said that HPV can also affect males in a particular way. Right. So the HPV virus, the human papilloma virus, can cause infections through many different parts of the body. In fact, the common warts that kids get on their fingers and stuff, especially when they're going to school and stuff like that, many of those are caused by HPV. You can get the HPV virus on the genitalia, on the vocal cords, in the throat, in the oral pharynx. And sometimes you have visible warts, and sometimes you don't. So you may not even know that you're carrying HPV. And that's especially true of male genitalia. In fact, the the forms of HPV that are visible, that cause warts, people generally seek treatment for it because if it's unsightly, they don't want it, right? Right. And it's, uh, you know, as a dermatologist, really all warts on the skin are caused by HPV, but there are dozens, if not hundreds, of different species of the virus. Now, how many HPV types are covered in the current vaccine? Well, there's, there's a couple of different vaccines, and the number of strains covered varies by the vaccine. But the most important point is that the vaccines don't cover all the strains. They cover the strains that are most likely to cause cancer. So the vaccine isn't supposed to prevent all forms of HPV. It's supposed to save lives. It's supposed to prevent cancer. And there's a type of cancer that most people are unaware of. We're typically thinking that it might be cervical cancer it's meant to prevent. Isn't that right? Right. But you can also get head and neck cancers, especially in the vocal cord area. These cancers are more common in men than in women. Women can still get them. And actually, the rate of death from HPV-related head and neck cancers is now greater than the rate of death from HPV-related cervical cancer. And that's because we have no screening tests. Women get their pap smear, and I think the word's out there, you need your pap smear. And the pap smear is a great screening test for HPV and cervical cancer. And so it's caught early, and women are treated. But there's no screening test. There's no pap smear-like test for head and neck cancers. And so people get HPV in their throat, and it's not treated, and it's not noticed until it's really an advanced stage cancer and can be very fatal. Are most of those cancers in men, or do women get those also, the head and neck? Most of the HPV-related head and neck cancers are in men, but women can also get them. The question that always comes up, and so I'm just going to state the obvious question, sure. is, is, this related, is this related to oral sex? And the answer is, you can obviously contract it that way, but you can contract it in a lot of other ways too, like going to the bathroom and holding your penis while you go to the bathroom and not washing your hands and then eating lunch. So it's very common. Or you could have the HPV virus on your fingers because you contracted it because somebody who had a wart touched, touched the doorknob last, and then you didn't wash your hands and ate lunch. So there are many ways to contract head and neck HPV-related cancers without having any form of sex. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where today we're interviewing Dr. Kathleen Birchelman, a pediatrician from St. Louis, about some hot-button issues related to vaccines. Have you had your children receive the HPV vaccine, Kathleen? Well, that's a tough question, Tom. You hit her with that. (laughs) I do. So uh, I have six children and... uh, Everybody asked it, so I'm glad you did. I have six children, and they are all fully vaccinated, including the HPV vaccine, and that includes my boys. My boys also receive HPV. 
great. You know, as, as a dermatologist, I realize that people can get warts on any part of their body, even as children, and you can get them down, you know, in your private areas just because the hands touch everything and can bring a virus from one area of your body or a friend's body to another part of your body. So you're right. Viruses can go anywhere, and kids put fingers in mouths, and that's one way that virus can get in there too. So you make some excellent points. I think the other big issue that we wanted to discuss tonight were vaccines made from tissue of aborted babies. But it goes by a euphemistic name in uh, the most of the medical literature, doesn't it? Right. So the more common term in the medical literature is human diploid cell line vaccines. So these are vaccines that are grown in cell lines that were derived from aborted fetal tissue. So I commonly refer to them as vaccines derived from aborted fetal tissue or human diploid cell line vaccines. So they're not you know, constantly needing a new supply of aborted fetal tissue to make these vaccines. There were a few abortions many years ago where the cells from those fetuses were used to start a cell line in culture where they grow some of those fetal cells. They, because they're very undifferentiated cells, very early type of fetal cells, the advantage is that they can they, they can keep growing them in culture like for a very long time. And the, it's a, this type of undifferentiated cell that's very good for growing vaccines. So, But we would never consider doing that as a, a moral option today to start something new like this, would we? That's correct. It is considered distant cooperation with evil. And starting it again, making a new vaccine from an aborted fetal cell line or making a pharmaceutical that comes from another pharmaceutical that comes from aborted fetal cell lines is definitely uh, cooperation with evil and uh, is contrary to the Catholic teaching. Kathleen, I wonder if you could give our listeners sort of a list, if you would, of which of the common vaccines are related to this, this issue. Sure. So the most common vaccines that are difficult to get around are the MMR, and varicella. And at this time, we do, we, I mean, me and my colleagues in the Catholic Medical Association have uh, agreed, there's a group of us that have all agreed that we do recommend giving MMR and varicella, even though they are, they are vaccines derived from aborted fetal cell lines. And that is because of the prevalence of varicella, which is chickenpox, and measles and mumps and rubella in the United States. And because those illnesses can cause death, and the risk of death from those vaccines, you have to, you have to compare the, the remote cooperation with evil of using the vaccine to the uh, benefit of saved life from the vaccine, and also consider that you have no alternative in the United States. And so the... The Catholic Bioethics Center, the National Catholic Bioethics Center, and the Catholic Medical Association and others have agreed that in this circumstance, you can use these vaccines, but you do have an obligation to encourage the development of alternative vaccines and to speak out on the issue. And isn't it true now that virtually all makers of new vaccines are doing it without using cells from aborted babies for this very reason? No, unfortunately, there are some new vaccines that are that they're making using these cell lines that very much concerns me. One of them is Ebola, and there's some other new ones that are under development. And the vaccine companies have not heard our cry on this. And so it's so important for people who oppose abortion who to speak up on this issue, to ask for alternative vaccines. So the biggest important drive question that you need to ask as a parent when you talk to whoever gives you your vaccines is, do you offer alternatives? Now, when it there, there's, there's, there, I want to refer you to a chart at uh, the St. Louis Guild of the Catholic Medical Association website that gives a whole list of the vaccines for which there are alternatives. 
So, for example, many pediatricians use Pentacel, which is a combined vaccine. It's a bunch of vaccines all together to mi- minimize the number of shots that kids get. There's a different brand that's equally effective and CDC approved called Pediorex. As a parent, you need to request Pediorex, not Pentacel. We need to go to a break right now, Kathleen. We'll get back with more. You've been listening to Dr. Kathleen Birchelman talking about vaccines today with Dr. Chris Stroud and Dr. Tom McGovern on Dr. Doctor. We'll be back after a few minutes. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. We're joined tonight by Dr. Kathleen Birchelman. We'll pick up where we left off before the break. Kathleen, I wanted to move in the direction as an OBGYN that I struggle with uh, so many times with my patients, and that is patients that have tremendous concerns over the general safety of of vaccines. We hear from movie stars and politicians alike about things as disturbing as links between vaccination of children and autism. And I wonder if you could help our listeners begin the process of thinking through that dilemma. Sure. Well, it, it amazes me that the movie stars get so much press and the Catholic doctors, so much press about this and Catholic doctors can barely make a, a, a statement. But I want to start by saying that after many years of spiritual and intellectual and scientific discernment about whether there may be any role of autism in fetal cell line vaccines or vaccines in general, I don't, I don't believe it's true. I do not believe that vaccines cause autism. And, there's an, and there was an additional question that has come up over the past decade or more about whether vaccines derived from aborted fetal cell lines can specifically cause autism. Like maybe it's just those vaccines that are causing autism. And I don't believe it's true. I don't believe we have the data to suggest that. Well, what if you had a child with autism? Would you have them vaccinated? So I do have an autistic child, and that child is fully vaccinated. Well, that's a pretty powerful testimony, Kathleen. Thank you. Well, it's interesting. I see. I'll bet if I surveyed most of my patients and I said, are you opposed to vaccines? My sense is the majority of them that would say, yes, they're opposed. What they really mean is they're opposed to the schedule. And I wonder if you could speak to that. I have patients every day say, why does my child have to have five shots today and five shots next month? Where does that schedule come from? Could you help us with that? Sure. The schedule comes from trying to get the child protected as early as possible because the longer you wait, the longer they're at risk for life-threatening diseases. And there's actually no data that shows that patients who spread out vaccines decrease the risk of side effects from those vaccines. However, there is data that shows that they increase the risk of contracting the illnesses that are prevented by those vaccines. So I recommend full vaccination in accordance with the CDC recommendations on schedule while making your best efforts to avoid vaccines derived from aborted fetal cells. Okay, well, thank you. You know, we hear a lot about vaccines, a phrase that's pretty unusual for most of our listeners. It's called herd immunity. For those of us who are not farmers, maybe <laughs> maybe you could help us understand what herd immunity is and why that's an important concept. So herd immunity is just the idea that if everybody's vaccinated, that the risk of anyone getting the illness is very low. So you might have a few people that are immunosuppressed or old or too young to have received their vaccines. And those people are protected because everyone else has their vaccines. However, I have heard many people make the argument that their risk of side effects from the vaccine is greater than their risk of contracting serious the illness and having serious consequences from the illness it prevents. And that was true previously, a couple of decades ago, uh, regarding some of our vaccines. But that's a very selfish argument. Hmm. And, and the Catholic principle of solidarity is that you should put the well-being of society, of others, of the, of the group, above the individual. Some people refer to that principle of social teaching as the uh, supremacy of the common good. Other people use the term solidarity. But I think vaccinations, 
one of the best examples. If you say, I'm not going to take this small personal risk because I'm thinking only about myself, you put, if everyone does that, you put everyone at risk. That sort of flies in the face of the almost malignant individualism that we, we see in today's culture, doesn't it? It does, and I think that's a big reason why we've lost herd immunity. We've had so many people saying, why would I take this personal risk when the risk of the vaccine is greater than the risk of serious complications of the illness it prevents? Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, old so enough to, I'm old enough to remember my smallpox vaccine uh, and my little scab mark that I have in my arm. And I also remember hearing my mother speak regularly about polio scares. You know, two diseases, smallpox and polio, we know nothing about today in America. But as a child, she was disallowed from going to public swimming pools and going to movie theaters because, you know, people were contracting polio and and dying or being seriously injured from it. But we've forgotten all of that, haven't we? Yes, and very quickly. My own preceptor, who I worked under as a medical resident, Dr. Mary Tillman, told me that She entered pediatrics because as she went through medical school, she realized in her studies, one by one, what each of her childhood friends had died of, and that she wanted as a doctor to be able to to prevent those illnesses. And that, you know, this is is a woman who only retired like a few years ago, and all of so many of her childhood friends died of illnesses that are prevented by vaccines. We forgot so quickly. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where today Dr. Chris Stroud and Dr. Tom McGovern are interviewing Dr. Kathleen Birchelman, a vaccine expert, pediatrician from St. Louis. So it sounds like, Kathleen, vaccines have become a victim of their own success. One of the vaccines you were talking about in the prior segment, rubella, People forget that 95% of babies get rubella if their mothers do, if they're in in the womb at the time, and that 20% of these unborn babies will have permanent damage like deafness, blindness, or, or mental retardation. But we've forgotten that and other things, haven't we? We have, and the Church is very clear on this. They, they, there is documentation from the Vatican that says that if you choose not to get these vaccines and then spread this illness, that you have moral culpability for that. And that was regarding these vaccines such as rubella. They specifically talked about that, didn't they, in in a reflection from the Pontifical Academy for Life? Yes. And that document's also available at the link. Um, that it's on the St. Louis Guild of the Catholic Medical Association website, along with our recommended vaccine schedule that meets all recommendations for CDC vaccination on time, on schedule, while avoiding use of fetal cell line vaccines. And all of that's available on the St. Louis Guild of the Catholic Medical Association website. And we'll get that onto the Redeemer Radio website. Those are going to be very helpful for our listeners. That's a great resource, Kathleen. Thank you. I wonder, you know, the, the discussion that we're having with you right now, I'm sure that our listeners uh, have had their perspective changed just from listening to you discuss it. Uh, unfortunately, many of our colleagues in family medicine and pediatrics seem to be unwilling to have that discussion. I hear every day from patients who are frustrated because they were told if they didn't want to vaccinate their child on the schedule, just don't come to the appointment. You're not our patient anymore. Uh, I wonder what we could do to try to convince our colleagues to engage in the same discussion uh, in a respectful way that you have. You know, that's such a difficult question because we're not reimbursed as physicians for having this conversation, or at least not much. (laughs) And um, you have to have the same conversation over and over and over again. And and sometimes it takes a very long time. And sometimes you, you, you have a parent that's really struggling with a lot of anger, and um, it's a difficult conversation. And uh, you ha- as a physician, you do have to balance your need to practice medicine and, and see the, all your patients with the amount of time it takes to have these conversations, which is why I think that media media coverage of this topic is so critical. You know, I think the answer might be when you're not taking care of your six children or being a <laughs> pediatrician, you write the definitive book for Catholic parents, <laughs> and then that would solve all of the problems. 
<laughs> well, actually, I want to re- uh, reference also my my good friend and colleague, Dr. Elizabeth Abraham. She actually was the one who did a lot, not all, but much of the legwork of putting together that vaccine schedule that uh, that meets CDC requirements and also avoids use of vaccines derived from aborted fetal tissue. Absolutely. Kathleen, what type of parents are opting out of vaccines who may not have 15, 20 years ago? You know, I I know we have a largely Catholic audience, and so I'm going to talk about this problem, that people opting out of vaccines are very largely people of faith. And I understand why. It's because the medical establishment has become very liberal, and there's a loss of trust in providers. Because you've got the American Academy of Pediatrics very vocally pro-choice, very vocally advocating for a loss of parental autonomy and prescription of contraceptives very early uh, without parental consent, etc. So parents are losing trust in the liberal arm of the medical establishment, and the conservative arm is smaller. And so parents of faith question whether they can trust their pediatrician's vaccine recommendations if their pediatrician is also recommending contraception for their 14, 15, 16-year-old. So it's guilt by association. I think so. And that makes a lot of sense. I think that's why it's important that we have programs like this and people like you who can who can set the record straight that just because they're wrong on many things, it doesn't mean they're wrong on everything. And I think it's interesting that you would say that. that I think I've heard a lot of legal minds say that there's not a malpractice crisis in medicine. There's a crisis of trust. And that's really the, the, heart, of the, the heart of the problem, isn't it? Yes, yes. Are you finding or have you found it harder as you went from a new pediatrician or a resident to today to convince people to use vaccines? That's a hard question. Um, I think actually it's, it's probably about the same. What's happened to me personally is that I've had many children and grown in my faith and have with raising six children, I tend to spend most of my non-working time in their activities and communities of Catholic parents. And that community is very distrusting of pediatrics and pediatric recommendations. And so I get these questions constantly from them. So it's a harder audience than when I was working in public clinics where people just came in and asked for their vaccines and barely had questions. And you tried to explain them and they said, no, thanks, I got to go. <laughs> that That's a great insight, Kathleen. Is there any final point or points you'd like to leave with our listeners? That I strongly recommend full vaccination in accordance with CDC recommendations while avoiding use of vaccines derived from aborted fetal tissue and specifically asking your vaccine providers for the brand preferences that avoid use of aborted fetal cell line vaccines and vaccinate your children against HPV, your boys and your girls. Thank you, Kathleen. We'll post those references on our website. You've been listening to an interview on Dr. Doctor today with Dr. Kathleen Birchelman, a pediatrician and an expert in vaccines. Please stay tuned for the final segment of this show where we discuss health matters because people matter. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. Tom, I want to clarify just something that I think some of our listeners may have been a little confused about in our last segment with Dr. Birchman, and that is she pointed out that it's possible to contract HPV or human papillomavirus outside of sexual activity. And that is correct in that when she was talking about HPV diseases of the head, of the neck, of the throat, that's certainly an example of that. I just want to point out, because we were talking about pap smears before Dr. Birchelman joined us, that cervical disease, that is pap smear-related findings, that HPV is only contracted via vaginal sexual intercourse. And thank you for clarifying that, Chris. We don't want to leave people unduly worried or wondering what we're teaching them on this show. So that's very helpful, and it ties together the, the whole show, the pap smears, the vaccines, and now at the end. And Tom, I know that most of our listeners are pulled over at the side of the road because they're anxiously awaiting, in great anticipation, the answer to the trivia question. Yes, and to repeat the question... 
The man who discovered the cause of Down syndrome has a cause for canonization. Who is he? Who is he? It's Dr. Jerome Lejeune. And he's responsible for a vitamin that all pregnant women should take. And that vitamin, which is probably better known to you than to me, is folic acid or vitamin B6. Dr. Lejeune is actually the patron of our Catholic Medical Guild here in Northeast Indiana. He lived from 1926 to 1994 in France, and he was a geneticist and pediatrician. You know, he had an amazing heart for children and children with a terrible disease. And he discovered the genetic basis for Down syndrome, now that we know is trisomy 21. Yes. And that means three, instead of the usual two, copies of the 21st chromosome. And what I think is so amazing about him is he made this tremendous discovery, and then at great peril— He spent the rest of his career trying to protect the very children that he had been studying. In the um, late 70s, he received the award as the top geneticist in the world. And he was in San Francisco receiving this. And when he got up to give his acceptance speech, he talked about how many of the people in the audience, geneticists from around the world, were using his findings to figure out which babies to abort because they had trisomy 21. There was a deafening silence when he left the stage. Nobody applauded. That night, he wrote a letter home to his wife in France saying, Honey, today I lost my Nobel Prize. Amazing. And yet he, he proceeded undauntedly, didn't he, to try yes. to protect the lives of these children. And in fact, he became the first ever president of the Pontifical Academy for Life, which his friend, St. Pope John Paul II had begun, but he would only serve as president for the final month of his life as he was dying of lung cancer. Now, one of his findings is something that you use regularly in your practice, isn't it? The need for folic acid? That's right. Folic acid or folate, as it's called, or vitamin B6, as you point out, really is what makes a prenatal vitamin a prenatal vitamin. And what I think some of our listeners need to be reminded is that the importance of taking folic acid is actually before one conceives. Because by the time one realizes that one has conceived, uh, some of the damage because of the absence of folic acid could have already occurred. Isn't the recommendation to start a month before you, quote, try to conceive? In the ideal setting, that would be perfect. So really, if women have childbearing potential, they should have it in a regular daily vitamin. You know, women often ask me, which of the thousands of prenatal vitamins should I take? (laughs) And I always say, sounding like a husband, I would take the cheapest one. Because the only thing that really matters is the folic acid. Everything else is just the companies trying to make a better mousetrap. Very good. And what kind of things does folic acid prevent? Well, specifically, folic acid is related to a condition of abnormalities called neural tube defects. The most common example is spina bifida, where the spine or the spinal column in the embryo doesn't completely fuse and there's a defect in it. And usually the children have serious neurologic deficits or problems below the level of where that defect is. And from what I've read, up to 70% of neural tube defects are prevented by this very simple step of taking folate. Sounds too easy, doesn't it? Just a, a simple vitamin. And it sounds like it can also prevent cleft lip, cleft palate, and certain types of heart defects. It certainly can. Uh, folic acid is, is just a good thing to take and take it before one becomes pregnant. And is it true that even in pregnant women it can prevent a certain type of anemia? Yes. I mean, that's certainly talked about a great deal. I remember, because I'm old, when folic (laughs) acid required a prescription. And then it wasn't too long, shortly after folic acid became available over the counter, that all of the companies began making prenatal vitamins and making them more and more complicated, adding things like vitamin D and stool softeners and iron and (laughs) now DHA. But the reality is the folic acid was, was really the heart of the matter. And just think that women worldwide in all cultures are taking this because of a holy Catholic man who has a cause for canonization going. Remarkable man. We should all be thankful for the work and his tireless dedication to children. If you just turned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where today I, Dr. Tom McGovern, and my co-host, Dr. Chris Stroud, are discussing health matters because people matter. Well, we wanted to close off today's show uh, by answering a question from one of our listeners. And this question is uh, actually uh, two questions rephrased, and it goes like this. Do you have any patient pet peeves? Or put more diplomatically, what are some things patients may do that make it difficult to diagnose 
or help treat them. <laughs> are there any such things? I, I'm told there are. Of course, I personally have no pet peeves, but I've read about other people who have them. I hope none of my patients are listening because I'll be giving away my, my secrets. I think one of the funniest things that patients do, and I think it's just human nature, is that they start telling me what they think is wrong before they ask me what's wrong. <laughs> and it, it often goes something like this. What is it that's bothering you? How can I help you today? Well, it could be that, or it may be that, and then I thought it could be because I fell, and then it'd be something else. So what do you think? And I have to say, I don't know what I think because you haven't told me what's wrong yet. <laughs> I think another thing is sometimes patients have so many worries. They want them all addressed in the same visit. And sometimes it's just not possible. And if a patient were to come in with a list written out, and if a patient shows me that list, I can then figure out how to best prioritize the time to give them the most of what they want. Sometimes patients will just let out one thing at a time and talk about it, and then another thing, and then another thing. And the reality is we only have so much time. We, we don't have an unlimited amount. So if you can put together a list so that your doctor can prioritize. That way you'll get what you need to know on what's most important to you. You know, speaking of list times, I think one of the most important things, particularly from a safety standpoint, but also an efficiency standpoint, is to bring a list of all of the medications, both prescription and over-the-counter, that you take to every visit. Absolutely. I mean, with as many medications as people take today, Really, no physician can know all of the important drug interactions. That is probably one of the best things I like about electronic health records is now when I need to prescribe something, it immediately checks for any cross-reactions between the medications, and that really helps keep patients safer. But without that list, we don't get that information. And Tom, here's one. I'll bet you've never heard this one. Probably not. The question from the patient goes something like this. You probably don't know the answer to this, but... And then they ask me the question. <laughs> Does that happen in dermatology? Um, yes. And sometimes the answer is, you're right. I don't know the answer to that. Sometimes in my head I say, then why are you asking me the question? <laughs> because they're managing their own expectations probably. <laughs> and they, they, don't, they want to set themselves up to not be disappointed if you don't know. But I think that is often a valuable thing we can do for patients is to admit what we don't know. But one of the things I learned, I think back in my internship, and I think it was from a resident in surgery who said that the buck stops with the one who cares the most. And some of these patients have been you know, sent around from one doctor to another, and they just say, there's nothing I can do. Well, if there's nothing I can do, I've always made it essential that I find somebody who knows more than I do about it that I can hook up that patient with who can potentially help them. That's one of the things that that phrase means, the buck stops with the one who cares the most. I might not know the most, but if I care enough, I can at least help them find someone who can answer their problem. Yeah, very good points all. You know, one of the things that's often frustrating that patients might not do is tell the nurse who's taking the history before I go in the room why they're really there. They'll tell them some things but they won't tell them, and so I spend all my time on what is there. And at the end of the visit, the patient brings up, well, they're really there, but I've got to get to the next room for the next patient who's waiting in their time slot. Has, has that ever happened to you, Chris? Oh, only once or twice. Only. <laughs> oh, something. If you, if you want to non-endear a physician to you, have your cell phone on in the room and answer it while he's talking to you. Now, we should point out that uh, we, we, we need to be just as careful ourselves and using technology and not allowing our technology to come between the patient and, and, uh, and us as well. But that can be really tough, can it? Yes. If something is really that important, I tell my patients, then you need to be dealing with that and not scheduling an appointment right now. But I do not have my cell phone in the room with me. I have the ringer turned off, and I have it actually stuck in a cupboard above my desk when I'm seeing patients because we have lost so much in our culture of how to relate to individuals face-to-face, -face, not screen-to-screen. -screen. So I want to give patients that. And in fact, I just read today uh, a study where they showed videotapes to patients of physicians interacting with patients. And in half of the videos, the physician had a computer in the room. And in half of the videos, it was just a face-to-face -face discussion. And 75% of 
viewers of these videos said that the physician without the computer was more caring than the physician with the computer. Isn't that amazing? But I think it's true. So that's one way that I want to engender. I want to be there fully for the patient, and it's really helpful if the patient's there fully to listen to the physician. But you know, we're talking about our pet peeves, uh, thanks to this question, for things that patients do. But I'll tell you, as I, as I think about our own colleagues and peers, my pet peeves are what other physicians do that really, really drives me crazy. I think we have to constantly, continuously remind ourselves of what an honor and a privilege it is to get to walk into that exam room and to talk to a patient. Just like we want them to respect our time, we've got to remind ourselves that it's a very tough situation to be a patient. All of us, if yes. we haven't been, we will be patients. I hope to never be one of your patients. And <laughs> you probably hope to never be one of mine. That's a biological impossibility. <laughs> but we do, we do need to remind ourselves. It, it is work, and it can become mundane, but it's a position of honor, and it's a privilege to play a, to play a role in that relationship. Oh, I consider that every day. I go into a room, and it might be a minute or two after I meet a patient, and they are letting me cut something off their face and then put it back together. Uh, it's uh, how many people get to do that. Yes, I get to cure cancer every day, but the patients let me do it. And I owe a huge debt to my nurses. If I didn't have the incredible nursing staff that I have, I would not be able to to do this. So yes, it is a privilege that we should never take lightly, despite our pet peeves. And you know, we hear some funny things, don't we? I have the privilege of working with my wife in my office. Uh, my wife, Marianne, is a certified nurse midwife. And not too long ago, I walked into a room and the patient said exactly this. <laughs> she said, oh, you're not your wife. <laughs> No, it sounds like the end of some joke, Chris. We should probably leave it there. I think we will leave it there. You've been listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where Catholic doctors discuss medical matters because people matter. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And remember, the health care decisions you make today could have eternal consequences. Choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Tune in next week for another new episode of Dr. Doctor. Dr. McGovern and Dr. Stroud will talk with Dr. Peter Rosario about the challenges and rewards of caring for undocumented immigrants. Hear Dr. Doctor Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or catch up on past episodes anytime at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.